Which hitter had the finest fantasy baseball season since 1946? The answer might surprise you. We'll ask Rudy Gamble from Razball.com next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 27th. It's show number eight of the 2018 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday Tout edition for you. We'll talk with Rudy Gamble from Razball.com about the top 200 fantasy hitter seasons since 1946, about draft strategies, projection and valuation systems, in-season roster management tools, his boons and banes for 2018, and a whole bunch more. It's another big Tuesday Tout edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? They're playing night games now. Opening day is just a couple of days away. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout edition, part one of our interview with our feature guest expert, Rudy Gamble from Razball.com. Rudy, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks for having me. Before we start, it turns out I'm here in Waterloo, Ontario, and you are living in what used to be Waterloo, Texas. Yes, the little-known fact that Austin was once called Waterloo. Um, but, you know, I think they knew that, uh, they foresaw the ABBA song coming out, and it just doesn't fit Texas music, so they're like, we're going to have to change. Dancing Queen Texas didn't have that ring to it either, I suppose. We have a district that is okay with it, but... <laughs> How many fantasy teams are you playing this year? I'm at eight. You know, I have a, I have a official goal of never getting uh, over ten. or tr- Not an official one, I try. But uh, yeah, I, I'm, and I'm mostly in 15-team mix. That's, that's the format I've tried to, to focus on. So I've, I'm in the labor 15-team mix, the tout one. Uh, that Fantrax Baseball Invitational, uh, Yahoo Friends and Family. So those are the four expert ones. Uh, I do an, I'm do I'm in co-managing an NFBC main event team, uh, doing one of those hundred, those uh, 50 round NFBC drafts, and then I had a 12 team mix with the Rasball Riders and a CBS AL only. So and and basically uh, from Feb 15 through uh, Mar- around now is kind of draft season. Luckily this year, I felt that they were nicely staggered. When you're playing as many teams as you are, do you find it difficult as the season wears on to keep focused on the teams that aren't doing well, or do you tend to tip all of your attention towards the, uh, the teams that are doing well, that are in contention and let the other ones slide a bit? It's, uh, I mean, most, you know, I'm in two daily leagues, uh, the Yahoo one and, and, and the Rasball one. Those, it it is a little more difficult, you know, that, uh, but um, on the weekly ones, I just kind of built a cadence, and it's going to be a little tougher this year. I think some of the, like, tout fab moved up, so I've, you know, I used to, I kind of had like a Sunday night kind of ritual, and so I just kind of do all the research and, do, you know, checking for fab, so I, I've, I haven't had issues in the past, um, and luckily, at least as of, you know, just looking back at last year, I didn't have too many teams out of contention. So, 
Um, I'd say the hardest one for me is that CBS AL only is is a tough one. It's a it's a snake bit league for me. No matter what I do, you know. So I kind of look at you know I I draft that one in mid Feb and then try to avoid any of those players on my other teams. Right before this draft season really got rolling, you published at Rasball.com your 2018 draft goals, I mean your category goals, and then you said, I stand behind these numbers, but I don't use them as part of my draft. Why not? Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, everyone loves those draft goals, and I think people, you know, um, you know for, for many, they like to come up with their generally aggregated projections from, you know, various sources, um, Gray at Rasball produces his own. We have, um, and it's kind of easy to just say, okay, well, I'll just look at at projections and see how it's totaling throughout the draft. I find it noisy, you know that, um, and I think you get a little too hung up in numbers. I prefer, yeah, you know, I think the way I do it is I use our, my category dollars from the player rater, which puts everything on the same scale. And I think, um, particularly for hitting categories and pitching categories, that's way better. You don't get, you know, you, you see things more like, oh, I'm short on stolen bases, and this guy's a $9 stolen base guy. And, you, and it makes for quicker, easier decisions. There's one less, there's one, um, that one layer of abstraction works for me. The other thing with goals that I think people don't realize is, so my goals are based on my projections. You know, if, if you're working off projections that are more bullish, then you're going to look way too good. <laughs> during the draft or after the draft and vice versa. So depending on what you use for your, what projections you use, the, the goals tend to, uh, you know, rarely if ever uh, perfectly align. Ron Chandler said a few years ago that we have to start embracing the imprecision of the forecasts and the pr- player projections and figure out ways to um, build that imprecision into player planning and roster planning because the error bars are so wide. Yeah, I know. I've read a lot of Ron's stuff, and I've read the, the, the Babs Manifesto, and I think, yeah, there's a lot of similar thinking that I have. I, I, I think that goes the second layer of abstraction. So I do see, you know, while it might not be perfect, the 27 versus 23 homers, you know, I have found that having having that level of precision helps me. Um, and I don't feel that the need to go the extra layer, but I think it's that same thing of you want to be able to make quick decisions in the draft, um, particularly in a snake where it could be 30 seconds, even in a, in an auction, if you know, where you have to adjust to the way the market is. So that, that I find that, that the dollars work best for me, but uh, I'm totally in line with, uh, I think Ron's thinking there of, uh, trying to make sure that you're getting a good balanced set of skills on a team. I presume most of your drafts are done now. You mentioned some of the leagues that you have. Uh, did you have an overarching strategy going into them? Was there something you were doing out there that uh, was common to every draft you went into? There, I mean, I do have some common kind of more on the philosophy. Um, yeah, I've, I've kind of spent a good amount of time thinking through draft strategy over the last two years or so and kind of refining where I felt I had flaws in the past. Um, and I kind of see the way you draft is a bit of a reflection of yourself and your personality, maybe who you want to be uh, versus who you are. Um, now, I do mostly snake drafts versus auctions. So that narrows the strategic possibilities. You can only be so bold in a snake draft, I'd say. and be. Uh, but uh, 
I do have this kind of goal, that how do I be bold while still maximizing team value? I know I'm playing in often 15-team leagues, so I need um, some level of variance and upside in order to win. Um, so I'm just trying to minimize any suboptimal decisions based on risk aversion um, or potentially bias or preference towards certain types of players. So I try to, you know, I put a lot of time into the projections and then uh, trust those and come up with a game plan that tries to take advantage of whatever small edge the room might be giving. Um, but it's hard to have uh, a set strategy. I kind of look at each draft a little differently because the market's so fluid. You know, I draft from like mid-Feb to late March. So, yeah, I feel like as the preseason goes on, I get a bit smarter, better read on certain players. Maybe there's players I drafted earlier that I'd, uh, I want to fade and I don't want to have way too much shares in. Um, but, I mean, just as an example, in mid-Feb, I drafted Ronald Acuna in the ninth round in labor. You know, my last draft on Saturday, he went in the fifth round in a main event. Um, so, you know, Acuna, he, he was he was definitely in my thinking for the first draft. And I drafted him in the eighth round and the seventh round um, in some other drafts. But you, you kind of have to be fluid and you can't get too stuck on a certain construction. Um, so it's, uh, it's fun. Um, I think, yeah, the, I think the biggest improvement I made over the last couple of years is just thinking about roster construction and instead of thinking like there's there's some people that are like value drafters and the feeling is i don't really have to plan i have my values and i'll build the team based on the inefficiency in the room but i feel like thinking ahead of time on what the ideal construction will be based on your assumptions of what people will do uh leads to slightly better results all of that said, did you find that at the end of the at the end of the draft period of all the drafts you've done, you have certain players who are on a lot of your rosters? Yeah, yeah, and no, I think um, I think uh, Stanton was my most drafted first rounder. Um, you know, if I had a pick within like you know uh, outside the outside of number one, he was pretty much my choice, and he he fell. To me, in like the fifth or sixth pick, and yeah, I didn't. I wasn't fortunate enough to have get him in a draft where I had like the ninth or tenth pick. Um, Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna on, on several teams. I think a lot of um, Felipe Rivera, a lot of Cam Bedrosian and Brad Boxberger. Um, I think now I'm at the point where I've got a few cinder uh, guards, a few worrisome Otani shares. Yeah, I, I, it it tends to be that uh, there's certain players that just my projections like um, I'm able to construct a team around, and you know, and and the market doesn't adjust. I mean, Acuna is more a uh, an outlier, I'd say, than uh, you know, for for one that just really rises versus general, where there's just certain guys you look at and you're like, well, he's mine if I want him, and I have to make a conscious decision if I don't. Mike Tyson famously said, uh, Rudy, that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, did you catch any punches in the face in your drafts this year where you really got caught off guard? Not, not really. I mean, I think you know, the, uh, the main event was tough, um, mainly because I, I couldn't be there for it. I, couldn't be, I, was, I was offline in Nowhereville, Texas, camping with my family. So my co-manager was in charge of the draft. And you know, so that was 
planning as much as I could and setting up a war room and all that. But, you know, when things happen, like, um, you know, Ace, I think it was like we had the tick 10 and, you know, I did the math. I'm like, it's almost a given that either Sale, Stanton, or Harper is there. Um, and they were not. So, <laughs> you know, you try to put that, that type of, um, those type of drafts are tough. I find that the toughest ones for me is still when uh, starting pitching goes really quick. I like to, I like to have an ace or two, um, but I don't like paying first, second round prices. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rudy Gamble from Razball. Rudy, you're the stats guy at Razball.com. You build the tools, you do the projections for the site. What are the big challenges you found over the years of doing this in building projection and valuation systems? There's, there's a number of challenges if you want to do it right, and particularly for me, who where I'm publishing them and, and having a lot of people depend on me for, for their drafts. Take that kind of to uh, to heart. Um, so, I mean, for anyone who's thinking of it, I think some of the challenges start with, you know, uh, the time needed to do it, the learning curve, the the you know, the understanding of math, mastering Excel, or you know, ideally you want to understand a programming language. So, I, I was able to uh, understand SQL quite well, but there's others that use Python and R and other more sophisticated things. Um, just getting data feeds and hooking into them and make sure the reference data is right. Um, yeah, I think I think one area that's under discussed with projections is trying to figure out where are you really adding value. You know, I mean, it's one thing if it's I mean if it's fun for you to do it, but you're not coming up with better projections than you can just get off the from other sites. To me, is you know, if you have fun with it, great, but that's not very useful. Um, where I found is, you know, I looked at the process and divided it up and said, I feel like I, I'm really adding value on playing time assessments and a couple of smaller adjustments. But I, you know, early on, I looked at and found a, a partner in Steamer, um, where you know, I'd I'd work with them and they'd do the skill projections, and then I'd. Uh, Kind of adjust that for playing time, figuring out things like uh, where you know where do I think the batting order distribution is going to be? What do I think DL time is going to be? Um, you know how when do I think a guy's going to get called up? And I felt like that's where uh, you know that part, trusting in the skill projections, and then a couple adjustments like you know I eventually created a run and RBI model, and then you know valuing everything. Uh, so so. Yeah, you know, I, I and my readers can make the, the right decisions between players. I think I figured that out quite a few years ago when I was putting a lot of effort into into building projections, as I said, mostly based on three-year weighted averages, and then you do, start doing tweaking based on what you've been reading in the paper and so forth. And, and it suddenly dawned on me that I could spend my time more fruitfully doing other kind of work. And then, uh, as you said earlier, you take uh, uh, three or four sets of projections you trust, you average them, you look for outliers, and then you try to figure out where, whether or not the outliers make sense to you, which way they make sense, and so forth. And then uh, I started realizing that the dollar values were pretty much working the same way for me. I was still deriving my own dollar values, working out those kind of formulas. And again, as you said, if you're not really good at it, why not, uh, you know, Ricardo's theory of trade? Let's take a look at the opportunity cost and see if we can't do something more intelligent with the time and let somebody who's really good at this just do that. Yeah, no, and, and like I said, if, if, if your goal, like if my goal is to be kind of bold um, and, you know, once I've, you know, I've got a lot of faith in my system, you know, 
picking my spots where I'm taking, you know, calculated chances, you, you start aggregating multiple sources and you're kind of, you're just regressing to the mean. You might as well just use ADP. Um, so, you know, what I'll do, what I think is great is that if, if you start with a system, you know, particularly one system you trust, and I, I trust Steamer, um, and you have dollars, you know, you, you, you compare it with ADP and you're taking basically a third of the pool at least is off the board. Um, and so I'm at peace with it. Like a guy like Zach Greinke for the last couple of years has been off my board. You know, he's just never going to be there when I pick. But it allows me to focus on those that are on my board and dig into them. And yeah, there'll be guys that my projections love, like this year, Miggy Cabrera, you know, was easily justifiable in, in like, let's say the fifth round. Um, but I, I dug into that one. I'm like, I just don't trust a guy with a bad back. When I'm looking at these, uh, at the projections and the systems, I know that Baseball HQ does a, uh, a system wherein they, they look at skills and they assess per at-bat, per, per innings pitched ratios, and then they assign out the uh, distribution of playing time to guys who live in those cities or who uh, have an interest in those cities. And so it's a, it's a two-part process where one group of guys is working on doing the, the actual um, establishment of these baseline ratios, and there's a whole different set of guys who are looking at the teams and trying to distribute the playing time appropriately. It sounds like that's what you're doing uh, with uh, Steamer providing the one end and you providing the other? Yes. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's how Henry Ford used to dominate his fantasy leagues in the turn of the century. Um, the yeah I, I I trust in there and then yeah I find it, it it works well and I'm able to just you know I've I've found over the years little little efficiencies I can gain from it um, but my goal is to get a little better every year find shortcuts get more efficient and then devote those resources to whether it be strategy whether it be writing uh, new tools or I don't know invest it back in the family or something. Uh, how, if you do at all, do you measure the accuracy of your projections and valuations after the season, uh, back-testing things? I mean, how I do in leagues tends to be, uh, you know, one gauge. Um, and, you know, because it's often one or, if you're off on one or two players, that could really hurt your performance. So I, I you know, definitely look there. Um, I try to, I submit generally to, like, a fantasy pros contest, which is bigger in football, Um which I now do, but uh, for baseball is pretty big. And that, that, you know, like last year, I think the last, I was number two in rankings out of like 60 or so. And the last time they did the actual projections, instead of just the rankings, I finished second out of like 10. So um, that gives me some, you know, a good amount of confidence. You're going to miss on a number of things, but, you know, I think being right more often than others is, uh, is good. I think in the season, um, yeah, I, I've got a I've got a system called the Humbotsman that I'm Larry check. It, it runs every night, and it you know so I get the data in for the next, the last day, and I'm checking my projections each day at each stat level, um, and it tends to get quite monotonous in terms of you know you're not gonna you're gonna see you're gonna see variation at the day level, but when you aggregate it by the month or average it, um, you know you, you tend to see. Uh, tends to be pretty similar. And, you know, the goal is always, is there ways I can get a little better um, at, at each position? And sometimes uh, 
oftentimes it's readers um, who are subscribers who come to me and have an idea. And, you know, for every five ideas that are bad, one one's not bad. I kind of dig into it and, you know, make little improvements along the way. You've created a bunch of stats-based tools at the Razball site, all with names that uh, would be found on 1960s cars and appliances. Uh, let's start with the Streamonator. Yeah, that was my first one. I um, yeah, I, I use a lot of uh, Android and bot references to make sure it's clear that uh, you know it is it is kind of a self-running robot and just needs me for uh, clicking buttons every now and then, like I'm George Jetson. The um, so the streaming there was the first, and that that projects all the relevant roto stats in a five by five dollar value for all starts within the next seven to ten days, um, and then you could aggregate it for the next week on Fridays. Um, so our base starts at kind of the that core twelve team mixed uh, format where there's where streaming pitchers is huge, and that proves to be. Um, yeah, so it's really valuable for identifying streaming candidates. Um, as you get into deeper leagues, it's real important for starting and sitting decisions. Um, so, and what's what's good about it is that you're getting a baseline for each pitcher that doesn't change throughout the year. So you start coming up with, you know, for your league, oh, I want at least a five dollar pitcher, and if a guy's below five dollars, you potentially sit him. Um, so I think a, a common thing in our tools is trying to be kind of a decision support system. You run, you run your team, um, and this kind of helps us kind of you know make that call, especially when there's just a lot of marginal, you know, on the fence calls you have to make in a fantasy season. And what does the Hittertron do? Well, that's that's kind of the the flip side. So that that has daily projections for all hitters for the the next seven to ten days. Um, that's a little tougher um, in that you know you don't know the lineups for seven to ten days, so every hitter has a probability. Um, so, and then uh, that is added up as well for the next. Uh, so you can, you have next calendar week data as of like a Friday, and for NFBC we have Monday to Thursday and Friday to Sunday projections. Um, so the streaming and hitter trend tend to are the the two uh, kind of standbys in our roto stuff package and there's the dfs spot and we have an optimizer for for those that play daily fantasy you've added a couple of new tools uh how does the relievenator work yeah that was my uh my quixotic uh test for this year which was you know I, in the past you still have to model relievers if you're going to get good hitter projections so everything and that just you know the, the, the everything's kind of based on uh a variant of the log five method that Bill James had popularized years ago um, for for you know how to figure out what's going to happen in a hitter pitcher uh, matchup. So I had I had basically created bullpen aggregates for each team, and this you know so this year I disaggregated it. So I've literally um, you know would look at things like let's say if the Yankees Tampa, you know coming up with the probability that Alex Colomay pitches. And then if he pitches, how many innings? And then giving those probably, you know, basically the his matchup versus Aaron Judge might be only for uh, 0.2 at-bats or 0.3 at-bats or plate appearances. Um, but building it like that and then still working on it, but aiming for opening day to, to have reliever projections for each day and for the week. Um, 
as that's become bigger, I think particularly in weekly leagues with the way that starters are used now, that you, there's often this d- decision, do I want to have a marginal starter who goes five innings or do I want a middle reliever who goes three but has a much higher K rate and safer ratios? And you've added a trade analyzer, which is not called the trade donator, which surprised me a little bit. How does the trade analyzer work? Yeah, well, no, now, now you're making me think. Do I have to come up with a name for it? But I was thinking just, tr- I think of keeping that one generic. Yeah, that one should be out by the time this podcast is out. Yeah, we're we're at the the finishing uh, the near the finish line on that one. But it's it's simply a tool that allows people to put in players in team A, team B, and decide and look at which one's better. Um, we, we're, we ha- we're our player rater has dollar values for preseason, season to date, and rest of season. So a tool like that right now has preseason data in it. Once the season starts, we'll put in rest of season dollar values. And we try to, try to provide a little bit of uh, you know, enough formats to fit most leagues. So we'll have a a six by six OBP dollar value for some hitters, a six by six quality start value for some pitchers. Um, but again, just trying to, you know, create tools that help people make better decisions, give them kind of a second opinion without that. You know, our site has, we get tons of comments and gray and our writers are really good at answering them. Um, I'm a little, I, I don't get as many direct questions through it. Um, and probably not as reliable as them. They come up with a quick answer. But uh, it's almost as if I'm saying, look, the, all my answers are baked into these tools. So, uh, yeah, you kind of have me at beck and call 24-7. It's just in, uh, in number form. To do a, a trade analysis, does the uh, user have to enter in all the details of his league? Cause to, to analyze a trade, don't you need to understand where the categories are and where they're going to be and how those are affected by the trade? Or does that not uh, how this tool works? No, this one's just more, is it a, is it a fair value? And like I said, it, it has several formats baked into it, but it's not, you know, but it, it's a little bit more, uh, it's not saying, okay, if you do, if you add this player, what does it do to your overall standings like that? It does come with the projections underneath, so you could see what each player is projected for. Um, yeah, I, I think that's one where there's, you could build things a lot more complex. Uh, I'm a big fan of the 20-80 rule and thinking if you, know, you could build 80% of it at 20%, the cost and effort and complexity, that's, that's the best way to go. Versus, um, you know, but yeah, if I had endless resources, I probably would have things where there's you know, league import functionality and, and all this. I, I, think, um, I think when it gets down to it, that stuff has lower value once you... Um, lower value in practice, even though in concept it sounds great. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Rudy Gamble from Razball.com. And Rudy, you also have a pretty active Twitter feed, and you said the other day that you're skeptical of Philadelphia manager Gabe Kapler's statement that rookie Scott Kingery can play every position except pitcher, catcher, and maybe hot dog vendor. Why are you doubtful of Kapler's uh, estimate of Kingery's versatility? Well, it's odd. I mean, he's he's a second baseman and he's a rookie, so you know he, he's got he's it's been the first time through the the league or you know throughout the season there's going to be such learning and adjustment to that level. I mean, and I don't think he even has that. He has no AAA experience as far as I know, and pretty limited on AA. The other thing that's odd is that you know it's one thing if a shortstop, like if you're a shortstop going to third or going to second is considered. Um, 
quite mild move in normal. Moving from second to shorter third, it's not that it's unprecedented, but it's rare, uh, particularly from second to short. But it's super rare for a guy not to have any major league, any professional experience at it. I think a three. I think I have a three hundred nine. Uh, minor league games, he played second in 303 of them. So it's a, to me, it's it's, it's not a, a great move to be moving this that guy around if he's the face of your franchise. I mean, outfield is one thing. Yeah, particularly corner outfield, I could see hoping the athleticism covers there. Something like center field, I would, uh, you know, putting a guy out there that hasn't played there would be uh, worrisome. So I, I still think the most likely case is that. Um, if his bat is in the lineup, you put him at second. You know, maybe Cesar Hernandez goes plays some third base as well. Um, but I'm skeptical. I will see how how it goes. You know, but that I, I imagine those those first few games at short and third are going to be a little ugly. And uh, we'll see how bold, how uh, committed Kapler is to trying to make him his. Uh, Trying to think of it. I mean, like Ian Happy, even last year was a second center fielder, really only. So it's hard for me to come up with any case of a rookie who is this fluid in position. Like maybe a Javier Baez, but he's an incredible shortstop. He's starting. That that's where I'd want to start. Not a not a sec, a guy who's been placed at second base. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, that the organization has clearly identified him as a second baseman, and usually that implies there may be some issues with arm strength, and then all of a sudden for them to say, hey, you know what, we could throw this guy all the way over at third, which is quite a difference in throwing angle and throwing style. There's a lot of differences, and he's played, uh, I think, in AAA four games at third and two games at short in, uh, in a couple of years of minor league action. It seems an odd place to start experimenting with a guy at different positions at the major league level and not somewhere in the minors where you test out this theory before you throw him to the to the dogs. And my worry is that if they do do that, then maybe it, it affects his offense as well because he's taking the errors or the misplays of one kind or another to the plate with him, and, and we hear about that a lot as well. Yeah, no, I mean, and, I mean, you look at someone like, I mean, like a, a D. Gordon has the, the normal... I mean, D. Gordon, you know, came up as a shortstop, you know, but had a, a marked move to second. And then, I mean, the move from him for second to center, he got to play center all spring training. And, you know, and I know Scott Kinger, I've heard great things about his athleticism. It's not that I doubt he could do it. I'm not a scout. It's just seems really unwise to burden a rookie with having to learn all those positions unless he's a glove first guy. And that's not my impression is, uh, you know, he could be a, a good second baseman from a fielding, but they're bringing him up now because of his bat. Every season, uh, Rudy, we see players coming into the game who weren't drafted in most uh, fantasy league drafts because nobody knew about them, which is increasingly rare these days given the information explosion, but more often because their league rules don't allow them to draft non-roster type guys. So we all have to plan for one reason or, or another on these player promotions. You're a player projections guy. How can you build in the potential for some prospect to come into the mix who's not maybe as well-known as Acuna or, or uh, Victor Robles or even Scott Kingery? 
No, it's difficult. I mean, I think one one area that helps, and if you can imagine, it's another tool called the Prospectinator, which is free for like two more days, and then it goes under the paywall. Um, I, I've, you know, Steamer projects every single player in the in the minor leagues. So I've basically taken that and projects him for major league equivalency. So I've created a, a tool that um, projects them out for, you know, like 150 games and comes up with a dollar value. So that helps me identify guys that, if they play, you know, appear to be good. And um, it's not a coincidence that the top two this year were Acuna and Calhoun, and they ended up on several of my squads. Um, so it's first looking for the guys that, that are the highest in skill um, and then starting into, okay, well, what's the, the chance that they're going to go Super 2 with him? You know, a Super 2 case would, you know, you'd imagine like a team like Tampa that has nothing to play for is going to keep a, a Jake Bowers down until, until after Super 2 versus, um, you know, like an Acuna where I think it's pretty well known that he's going to come up you can get the, the Chris Bryant treatment, two weeks of seasoning, and then he comes up. So I'm trying to figure out um, those situations. You know, wh- if I don't know, I'm kind of hedging and just saying, guy's going to be down there for 60, 70 days. But the guys that I, I'm focused on are guys that, from the get-go, appear to have uh, major league value uh, at a game level. Um, and then, you know, trying to figure out, do they fit um, one of my teams? I've become I've become more loath in shall you know, in leagues where I only have like five bench spots to to hoard a guy a guy that's not going to come up for two months. So um, I'm you know really trying to figure out guys that I think might show up immediately. And I know I'm going to miss occasionally on a Kingery this year, which. And um, last year, I didn't have any Bellinger shares. So trying to be open to, to those players, but in general, uh, don't love, you know, I like to use all my bench spots for streaming hitters and pitchers um, and reliever lottery tickets versus, versus a prospect like that. So every year a little better. Also on Twitter, Rudy, you recently called attention to a 2016 article you wrote about debunking position scarcity in mixed league fantasy. Why did you decide to rerun the article? Well, there's there's kind of a perennial quality um, to sound like that because I think it's a every year there's a drafters have this quandary of uh, you know how to value players and even if, even if they see my values, they're still going to have questions. Um, so I think it, it's a you know, what I tried to put together is kind of a helpful thinking exercise. You know, there is a bit of preference that goes into your roster construction. Um, it did feel like this year I saw a number of peers kind of deeming that position scarcity is dead this year. And I felt like uh, also it's kind of a kind reminder that I'm, I'm driving the trolley. So if they went on board, great. But uh, they didn't, it didn't just happen. That, um, yeah, to me, the data was pretty clear that, you know, aside from catcher, that you know, just about every position provided uh, you know, decent value. There's no cliff at, at really any point. So, um, yeah, so I, I think, and um, yeah, so that was part of a, a shift I made. Yeah, I guess it was 2016 where you know, I, I, I stripped my player rater of just about every positional value, aside from a real mild one of catchers, because you look at it and you go, at best, this is just uh, a waste of time. 
and an abstraction, and at uh, worst, it's it's counterproductive. You also asked yourself if a rare positional star like at the time Buster Posey at catcher, now I suppose Gary Sanchez would fit this bill, confers a relative advantage that needs to be taken into account, and you still said no. Why not? Well, I don't think there, there's no need to kind of add a premium to it. Um, yeah, it, it is. It does go into somewhat roster construction. What what I have found recently is the top catchers do go for a. You know, let's say if every catcher goes at a mild premium, because I don't boost catchers the same amount in a two catcher league, particularly, um, all catchers are going at a mile at a premium. It's just how much of a premium they're going. I found that you know G- Gary Sanchez's price is pretty solid this year, depending on where you get him. I actually ended up with Buster Posey in the fifth round of labor because he he was at my value with a mild catcher adjustment, and I thought he he had him and um. Tyler Flowers were the best catcher bargains of the, and I got them at at my general value, um, which is just kind of one of various arguments that, you know, the waste of time of basically boosting all catchers when the fact that there's general disagreement means that there's probably a couple catchers that aren't that far off from your unadjusted values that are available in the draft. And finally, uh, Instead of a, a position scarcity model, what are your thoughts on the idea of category scarcity, like making adjustments for relatively scarce stolen bases? There's some thought that maybe saves need to be valued a little differently than other categories because of their relative scarcity. What do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, yeah, as part of the player rater, I'm, I'm valuing it for each category. So, yeah, and there's no doubt that um, like a, a Billy Hamilton or D. Gordon stolen base dollar contribution is higher than just about any other stat, especially when you're projecting. You know, at the end of the year, someone has 50 saves, which you can't project for. That has some rather large values. Um, But um, I think one of the misreadings, and uh, I agree with um, Rob Silver, who's I consider a Twitter friend um, and also a fellow Ontario citizen uh, as yourself, but not a Waterlooan. As far I think he's Toronto. Um, you know, people look at it today and and they'll say, um, well, stolen bases are so rare that increases the value of a Gordon or Hamilton, and it does for that stolen base category. But at the same time, all those homers means it's a higher bar you've got to climb uh, every year or this season. So their homer and RBI weakness is even greater as well. So um, you know, it's it, it's a Speed is something that I, I definitely think through. It's a core part of the draft strategy. Where am I going to find speed? Um, and how much do I want to invest in it? So I enjoyed drafting Turner uh, first in labor with the fourth pick um, because at the time I just didn't like any of the speed values. But as the, yeah, as the uh, draft season went on, I found more guys um, like uh, Albies and Kiermaier uh, throughout drafts that I liked and didn't feel I had to um, go give up too much on power and uh, RBIs to get. Does the uh, relative cost of power loss when you draft a D Gordon or, or Billy Hamilton or some kind of speed first type of player, 
Does that imply that there's some kind of compounding effect on the value of players who have uh, good speed but also contribute in the power categories? You mentioned Trey Turner, Mookie Betts is another example, of course Mike Trout, um, and uh, formerly Bryce Harper, not so much these days, but Paul Goldschmidt, assuming he runs a little bit. Does Do their power stats take on added value because they come with that side order of speed? I, I mean, I, I kind of see it that um, it's best to think of it that there's no real compounding value, that just everything has a value. Um, but from a draft strategy standpoint, I think, you know, you, power and speed have to be, are, are your two real components um, when looking at a draft. And so it can be after the first five rounds, you know, do I want some speed here? How much speed am I going to get if I don't get a Turner or Altuve? Um, so you just have to have a strategy. I found, get you know, um, when in doubt that there's two guys that are near equal, I want the guy that's delivering some speed, um, you know, with power, just so I'm not caught in a situation where it's the ninth or tenth round, and I'm like, and I'm having to decide, ooh, do I gamble on Valar this year, um, or do I draft? Um, I mean, even like a Delano de Shields, people are loving him. And, you know, the guy is really fast and he can take a pitch, but does it has not shown any power, strikes out a ton, weak on average, better on OBP. I don't want the Shields on my team. He's, he's going to be awful on Homer's RBIs and average. And I get, you know, so if you build a team that's great in everything and can um, counteract that, fine. I, I'm kind of seeing it a year that I want to, uh, you know, build everything else up. And if I at least league average in stolen bases, you know, I'll have the flexibility in season if I find what we call on Raswell a Sagnoff uh, for steals ain't got no face. Uh, if I find like a guy like that during the season or I could trade for someone, great. But um, yeah, it's almost like a set strategy. Can I avoid not taking any guy under 15 homer projection? And uh, I was successful on it. Last question about your Twitter feed. Uh, there was a debate on Twitter a while back that you took part in about the usefulness of tiers in play, player valuation, and you said in your tweet you don't use these tiers of player value. Why don't you? Yeah, that was, that was Fred Zinke who was stirring the, the pot. I don't think he even quite meant to, to stir it as much as he did. Uh, it had nerve with some people. Um, I mean, I, I try to help my readers make the best decisions, and I'm, I'm quite honest in what I use and what I don't, just like with the draft goals. Um, to me, there's a, you know, the way I look at projections is that, you know, there's always a strategic overlay to it, and the way I draft has a certain dependency on being able to use, let's say, Excel. I don't use any uh, software tools um, with loaded projections. But the way I think is kind of very quant, and I understand other people um, aren't as quant um, and maybe not as, you know, does it, uh, not as versed in strategy as me. So I'd kind of see it as that, you know, you know, I think my method's better, but I also think, you know, fresh pasta is better than store-bought pasta. And uh, I'm not grinding out my own fresh linguine, so, I can, you know, I, it's it's a bit of a, a rough judgment to basically judge everyone for a certain practice that they're doing the best they can and tears can help. I kind of just see it that there's more gradations with players that, um, 
you know, it's almost as if if you if you think of tiers, it's it's as if the player market is a is a staircase, and I see it as a sloping downward line. And so, if you think of it like that, then the staircase is just inherently wrong, and that tiers don't make sense. So, yeah, so it's it doesn't work for me. I get it for others, but. You know, uh, so I don't, but I, I will say, while I do publish the goals, uh, I don't publish anything like tiers. It's, I find it's like, if you want to draw a line at that $24 is, is the tier one and between 20 and 24 is tier two, go, go nuts. That's always what I thought was the weakness of it. And I, actually I have the same feeling about the, uh, use of hard, medium, soft contact versus actual miles per hour. At, at some point, you have to, if you're going to use the miles per hour, you have to draw some line somewhere that says, this is a hard hit ball and this isn't. And at, you know, is it 81.5 versus 81.6? Does a tenth of a mile an hour make that much difference? And in an inherently imprecise valuation system, does a, a guy being worth 21.50 versus a guy being worth 22.07 or whatever is that really a significant enough reason to draw a line between the two of them? That's the part of it that I don't get. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, I think, and I think, um, and I can't uh, speak for Fred on it, but I will. I can speak for the fact that he's an awesome mixed league player. But I think some of it is just, um, you know, I'm looking at a draft and saying I'm trying to figure out where the best values are. And it doesn't matter to me on tiers, and I'm planning accordingly. So there's, you know, a lot of the time I'll be like, I think I can get third base late. And so I'm not going to draft it as early unless a great value pops up. And I've got, you know, there's unlimited or near infinite paths I can take. And there's league, there's drafts I draft a lot of fat outfielders early, others where, you know, I know there's late round picks. It's almost, a, I kind of see the tier thing is there's a certain level of, um, it comes from a negative place. It's this thinking of, oh, there's only one guy left, and you're you're constantly operating in fear. Um, I don't, you know, where I'd rather operate with confidence and say, you know what, you know, there's no starting pitchers in the third round. I like. I wanted a starting pitcher, but I've determined that the values aren't there. I'll get one in the fourth. And and you know, and if you plan ahead thinking through those kind of situations, then you're in good shape. Where, again, yeah, I think if, if you're kind of like, oh my God, there's this massive cliff that I have to take a, this guy here and this guy here, you're just handcuffing yourself for no reason. But like I said, it, it, it's still helpful guidance. I mean, I still see a lot of people, you know, and the tout, I saw a number of people still with like, you know, paper and writing down their values and stuff like that. And it's, uh, I mean, that was an auction, which it plays better on, but if it helps, great. I, you know, uh, but yeah, ideally they would, uh, they would soak in some of my draft posts and start, uh, getting a little bit better and moving to like kind of the next step of sophistication. Rudy Gamble builds the projections and tools at rasball.com and writes for the site as well. Rudy, stand by for a second while I bring our listeners up to date on why I like to call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Christopher Olson looks at the American League East, Greg Bird's latest injury, the first base situations in Boston and Tampa, and some uncertainty in Toronto with Josh Donaldson. 
In the Batters Buyers Guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand wraps up spring hitters in the National League. And in playing time today, an unsettled bullpen in St. Louis, some bad news for San Diego starter Denilson Lamette, a potential new center fielder in Texas, Michael Brantley's latest trip to the DL, and a whole lot more. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, just a small sample of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time, and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Let's get back to our feature guest expert. My pleasure once more to be joined by Rudy Gamble from Razball.com. And Rudy, using your valuation system, you put a quiz on the Sporkle Quiz website challenging users to guess the 200 best fantasy hitter seasons since 1947. When did you do this? Oh, man, I think that was, uh, that was between my first daughter and my... Uh twin daughters where I, I guess and before I did football so it must have been like 2012 or 2013 I do love Sporkle as a time kill for uh, baseball and sports quizzes um, but yeah one of my I did an off-season thing where I had taken the player raider and um, that I have for preseason season to date and rest of the season and built it to run historically from like 1903 on a uh, it was quite, it was both fun, it's kind of like embracing my, it was like a, a combination of adult mathy Rudy and a dorky baseball card eight-year-old Rudy. Um, well, I'm still dorky, but little versus bigger dork. Um, yeah, there was a little bit of learning in there, um, looking at all the different eras and how the stats kind of vacillate and, and how it was almost like kind of testing the player rater and some of the assumptions. Um, I'll also say that was by far the least bang for the buck in terms of my time and my readers' benefits. So it's, it was both a fun time, but um, it does feel in retrospect a bit of an indulgence. A spoiler alert, if uh, you're listening and you want to go find the quiz and try it out, it's very hard. I, I did it, and it was very difficult. And you don't want to hear any of the answers. Uh, you should skip past this segment. Uh, Rudy, your top hitter season surprised me a little. I never would have guessed. It was from 1981, and it was a season worth almost $56, and yet only 31 homers, 91 RBIs, 12 steals, 78 runs, and a 316 batting average. How does a 31 homer, 91 RBI season end up being worth way more than 50 bucks? Well, I won't reveal the player, but 1981 was the strike year, so that was on a, a much smaller. Uh, I think I think that hitter probably had less than four did that in less than 400 at bats. Yeah, 380, I think. Yeah, so um, yeah, I mean, if if you look at that year, and I'm kind of going on a, on memory on it, but yeah, he had 31 home runs. I mean, barely anyone else in the league had 20. I think, the, you know, uh, let's say like an Andre Dawson, would, you know, was uh, might have been second on there. Um, so, if you you know, it would be kind of be like in the scale of someone hitting 62 homers and barely anyone else getting over the 40 mark. So you had this massive homer benefit, which is always huge. Um, there's a ton of RBIs. Um, I think... Um, there, there's probably only a few guys within like even 25% of 91 RBIs in a season like that. Um, you know, if that's in 380, you're talking about like a near 150 RBI season. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think it's just about everything. It was top five probably in runs, 
316 average you know, at the time is probably still top 15 or so. Um, and he kicked in some steals. So it's, um, it's all relative. That's kind of what you learn in doing in those historical player raters that, you know, everything's relative. And uh, I guess a good way of thinking of it is that it makes sense for it to be a strike season because it's a smaller sample. So there's more variance in the, in the results. And that player's season was just, uh, you know, probably best case. And if you had, uh, you know, taken it, if, he had, if the whole season played out, I'm sure there would have been some level of regression and maybe, you know, would, would have stopped at the 50 homer mark instead of maybe now on pace for 60 homers, which, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure that there was maybe like a 20-plus year period where I think uh, George Foster was the only guy to even hit 50 homers. Could we say who the player was? Sure, go ahead. I, I was I was Mike Schmidt during his uh, – that was probably his, uh, his best season and one of his several MVP seasons. Which players had the most seasons in the top 200? Whew, I haven't – not sure. I mean, I, th- I remember I ran something that I created a thing called a, the MVFH, which was the most valuable fantasy hitter. And I want to, and I think uh, Ruth and Mays were 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 one and two in that, with something like seven or eight MVPs or MVFHs each, um, and and Cobb third. So sometimes it matters. You know, that I did find that um, pre and post nineteen forty seven was was quite important, not just, uh, I mean, integration's a key one, but I think there was also a change in the way the game was played, more teams. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd have to think if, if Mays would be kind of toward those top, um, maybe Hank Aaron, who had, you never had the, the as many excellent seasons in terms of fantasy, like, you know, top player, but was just ridiculously consistent. I looked it up, and uh, Willie Mays had 12 from his 1954 season through 65 inclusive, and Aaron had 10, uh, 57 through 71, skipping uh, seasons here and there. But Henry Aaron had the number two season behind the strike-shortened Mike Schmidt year, so give Hank Aaron his props. Uh, I would have thought when I first looked at this that Ricky Henderson's season in 1982 when he had the 130 stolen bases would have been way up on the list, top 10, maybe top 5, but it was down near the bottom of the pile at a relatively paltry $34 value. Was it the 267 batting average? What was the problem with uh, Ricky Henderson's huge year? My guess, I mean, that was before he tapped into his power, um, and 130 stolen bases then wasn't, I mean, it set the record, but... I want to say around then, you know, Reigns was stealing 60, 70 bases. Um, the, you know, infamous Omar Moreno, actually completely anonymous Omar Moreno, Ron LaFleur. There was just a, it was just stolen bases were a plenty at that time. So it wasn't as much of an outlier as we look at it through today's prism. And the way the dollar values are, it is that specific to that year versus kind of a, you know, a, um, a central dollar value system. Um, so, yeah, you, it, it's probable that from a dollar value standpoint that, you know, when Maury Wills was like the only guy stealing bases and Louis Aparicio in the 60s, um, that those were just as valuable as Henderson's 130 in a, a heavy stolen base era, just like we would think that, uh, you know, you know, McGuire and Bonds' record seasons you know, aren't quite as amazing as, uh, you know, I don't know, like George Foster's would have been in the 70s. 
um, I feel like I'm dating myself. I just I know <laughs> way too much historical baseball stats, and I can't even blame that exercise. I, I think the lesson that, that I learned from doing the quiz and from looking at the results is the importance of the relative nature of the stats as they change from season to season and the shape of them, for want of a better term. You mentioned you've got Ricky Henderson stealing all these bases, but in an environment where stolen bases were plentiful and home runs were hard to come by, so probably the most valuable seasons would be home run oriented versus now if you find a balanced player who chips in 50 bags along with some kind of modicum of of uh, home runs, much less 130 stolen bases. Uh, I think Henderson had 10 or 12 home runs that year. If you found 120 run, 130 stolen base, 270 hitter these days, he'd probably be chalking up big uh, top season values, wouldn't he? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're looking at Trey Turner as a guy that, you know, the key difference between him and Gordon and Hamilton is that he's got, potential for 15, 20 homers. I mean, who knows what the, the true upside is. Um, and he is, uh, and the, the feeling that, yeah, he's, he's going to give some power a little more on the stolen bait on the RBIs than those two. And, you know, while there's, there's this feeling that, yeah, I mean, Trey Turner, uh, especially early in the season had, um, didn't have as, as great a track record seemed crazy to take over, you know, maybe more established 40-120 guys or, you know, Homer RBI guys, I think, um, yeah, I think that tells you, you know, what it would be. So if if you told me, you know, Trey, if I told you Trey Turner's going to steal 80 bases this year and I was actually prescient and you knew he was going to steal 80 bases, I think you'd be nuts not to take him first <laughs> um, with, with that kind of thing. I think, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's – pretty fair to say that the the yeah if i had mike trout is is likely the number one finishing value guy which as we know that's still only probably like a 10 15 percent chance of happening yeah i feel like a healthy trey turner is uh is number two on that list with stan of course who i adore um i would say one thing that was real you know one of the things that you have to think about from a player raider and the player raider and especially when you're thinking like um let's say Babe Ruth, where he's hitting 60 homers and not, and teams didn't even hit 60 homers, is looking at it and knowing that there's, there's a certain ceiling where enough is enough. Like, you know, it's, you know if, you, if I told you that, uh, or if, if we had a time machine found out Stanton hits 110 homers this year, well, clearly he'd go for a lot in auctions. He'd go for an unprecedented amount, but you still have to stop bidding at some point that you can only get so many points in a standings on, in homers. So there's this inevitable ceiling on how much you can credit a certain category. That's an interesting uh, concept, too, because when you're drafting your team, it kind of affects the way you value players. If you think you've already got enough home runs to win the category, all of a sudden players whose primary source of value is power all of a sudden lose a lot of their value for you in that context at that time. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the differences in how I built my player raider versus... Yeah, so it's, I, I built it independent of standard uh, gain points or SGP, but no doubt um, it's, a, it's a variant of it. But I'd say one of the key differences is that the, the assumption a lot of people make is that, well, you start with the assumption that you're going to finish last in a category. 
Um, so if you think of, so and Ruth is a good case. If you said, okay, if you assume last and you have Ruth, then he got you 10 points in homers or 11 points in a 12-team league. Um, but that's a, to me, that's an incorrect assumption. The best assumption, knowing nothing, would be that you finish in the middle in a category. Sure, yeah. yeah. And thus, the ceiling is really taking me from middle to the top in a category. Um, and if you, you know, so that creates, um, I'd say that forces down the values a bit more at the top. Um, so it's, a, it's, to me, that's the, uh, but that had been baked into my system. So let's just say that was like an, a confirmation of, of what I did versus not. Because I think if you did it the other way, you'd be like, well, Ruth's homers are worth, you know, 11 standing points, which is insane. And, and everything would get kind of warped. And if you looked at it, you might find that, uh, you know, that homers were way overvalued in standing gains points versus other uh, categories. And so, like, while I'm, I'm not a, uh, while it's not set, like, um, to be super, I'm not super anal about it. I think if you sum up the dollar value, the plus zero dollar values um, across our cat- my categories, they tend to be quite equal. The uh, one player who jumped out at me f- uh, throughout the list as perhaps the the most accomplished in terms of getting really good seasons was Joe Morgan when he was playing for Cincinnati from 72 through 76. He had two top five finishes, another two top 50 finishes, and then one uh, a little bit farther down the list. But boy, Joe Morgan was a good ball player. Yeah, and well, remember, this was just uh, that's just five by five with average, let alone if you counted as on base. Yeah, no, no kidding. It's, um, yeah, I think many people, once they start looking at the stats through today's prism, see, look at a Joe Morgan, not just from a fantasy perspective, but real perspective is, you know, arguably, you know, uh, the best modern era second baseman. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys in the, you know, pre-integration that were amazing at values, whether it be LeJoey, Le, Le I don't know how to pronounce that guy's name, or uh, Hornsby, but... Morgan really do it all. Um, it's just um, it's just cruel irony that he's an awful, awful analyst. <laughs> um, you know, mock worthy um, because he really was uh, the perfect player. He really was, and uh, as a Cincinnati Reds fan, I'm glad to point that out. Johnny Bench actually turns up a couple of times on the list as well, and you mentioned George Foster. Uh, before we let this topic go, uh, Rudy, did you ever do a pitcher list or ever think about doing a pitcher list? If you have time to kill, if you go to the Raz Ball under Player Raider, um, after the, the three really useful preseason, season to date, and rest of the season projections, there's a historical Player Raider. So I built, um, so there's, I think you could probably find like top 1,500 pitching seasons and who were the most valuable pitchers in a year. I think uh, I did some variant on what a Cy Young, but. Maybe a F A N T C Y, like a fantasy. Um, really forced, but um, yeah. So there's there's a ton there. I think pitching is is more difficult than hitters. Where hitters, you had to account for really the homer stolen bases was a key factor you had to factor in. Um, with pitching, it's that the innings pitched have changed so dramatically, and the role of relievers has changed so dramatically. It's really difficult to compare, you know, anything pre, even like let's say 1980 and after 80. 
Um, so yeah, you'll you'll inevitably in the in the see guys like Ed Walsh or something. Probably I think he had the top pitching season with like 450 innings or something crazy. Um, but you can always normalize it by era. You know the way the the tables work. You'd say you know past 1990, um, and I'd have I'm almost 100% confident that the best modern era season was was one of Pedro's years around the, the the millennium but he had he had two years there where he's throwing like sub two era sub 0.9 whip during one of the most you know offensive errors there was um yeah it led to uh yeah it's kind of crazy thinking back and the thought that pedro martinez wasn't the number one pick in the draft at the time the one that always jumps out at me, and this is going back a little further in, in time, is Mike Marshall in 1974-75 when he's piling up 14-15 wins and 20-30 saves with uh, terrific decimals as well. And, and uh, no shortage of strikeouts either, 125, 130, 140 strikeouts. I'll bet Mike Marshall would have a pretty good score uh, based on the saves-wins combination. He would. I mean, yeah, that saves was obviously another uh, difficult thing to handle per era. Um, I mean, because it could be like eight saves in 1920 was great. You know, there was like a few guys back then that had these huge values. Um, Furpo Marbury, I want to say, of the the uh, Senators was was an early rele- uh, relief man. Um, so yeah, that 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 definitely adds some uh, challenges. And I think that was probably part of that probably helped some of my thinking in terms of. You know how do you how do you deal with starters and relievers separately? Um, you know, and, and one of the ways that I do it on the player writer is I basically denote like a certain amount of dollars go to starters and a certain amount go to relievers. And I find that's a uh, a good way of of making sure you know things don't get too overwhelmed on either side. Um, I know in the preseason I never you know there's always more saves than I'm going to project because you never know who's going to be the 50-save guy, just that there will be. So I tend to be a bit conservative there. And, uh, yeah, so it's one of the, yeah, you can imagine, it, 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 if, if one is just starting out and really wants to do a player raider, you know, I don't, uh, I don't particularly advocate that as your use of time. But if you are, <laughs> starting with a historical data set is a great learning because you basically get 100 years of learning crammed into uh, – yeah, a couple months. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rudy Gamble from Razball.com. And Rudy, during the season, now that we're just about underway, I like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Boons being guys you like, banes being guys you don't. Let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners. How about in the American League, a hitter you think is going to be a boon? So a guy in the AL that I have in several teams is Kevin Kiermeyer. Um, I think he's one, you know, I think if you look back last year and, um, I, I had a lot of Stanton share, so that worked out quite well for me. Um, I see Kiermaier's guy that, that he's had a couple of fluke injuries and disguise the disguises the fact, especially his, his plus glove. So I think if you ask people, they think plus glove, wasn't he injured would be the two things. What, what's kind of hidden is that, you know, if this guy's healthy, he's a near lock for 2020. I think he has a shot at maybe 25 homers up to 30 stolen bases, not even up to, but he has chances of becoming, you know, 
a, a really strong five-category contributor. also like the fact that uh, he's always guaranteed to hit, I think, second or third this year. I mean, maybe to get a little bit of leadoff, but you know he's going to get a ton of plate appearances. You know he's going to get be able to max out on runs and RBIs, uh, whatever they can squeeze out of that Tampa team. And that'll be the trick, only barely over 200 games played in the last two years combined. Uh, over in the National League, who's a hitter you think will be a boon? A guy I got in a couple leagues uh, is Gerardo Parra. Um, clearly not the sexiest name, but um, but he's in cores, which is always important. And uh, I think he's going to play most days, given his contract. Um, given, I think, Dahl's going to be down for a little bit. And Cargo, is, is to me, is more likely to have performance issues or health issues to, to, uh, to, for Dahl to displace him versus Apara, who's still a solid fielder at least. Um, it's just about where you're getting him. I mean, I think he's on the waiver wire probably in a 12-team league. Um, I picked him near 300 in a couple of 15-team leagues. What I like about him is, is thinking of him as a, uh, a sixth outfielder. You play him during Coors weeks. You can sit him if you've got better options. His stats at home are OF3 worthy, and you're getting him at a, at a real cheap price. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher you think will be a boon for fantasy teams? Probably might be my most owned player is Charlie Morton. This is one where you have to just accept the reality that you know there's no such thing as a there's very there's no such thing as a workhorse at that part of the draft, and the closest thing to a workhorse is someone like Rick Porcello which um, adds middling value to your team. So I see Morton as a guy that, you know, I'm hoping for 100 to 150 innings. But the stuff is nasty. The team's great. Um, really seemed to find himself last year. So I'm just looking for quality innings from him, and I think you'll get him at really cheap prices this year. And in the National League, uh, Rudy, who's a pitcher you think is going to be a fantasy boon? I'm taking a couple shares in deep leagues in Derek Holland. Uh, I think he he's going to make the San Francisco staff partly through attrition, but um, but they they don't have a ton of options at the uh, the tail end of their rotation. He had an awful year last year in Chicago, but the guys played in Texas and Chicago, two hitters parks and hitter leagues. And he's getting to move to San Francisco for the first, you know, which is paradise for a uh, a pitcher. Um, he's going to get that moving to NL gives you a cane per nine boost. Um, not that he's got a ton of them, but you know, might get you should get over seven. Um, so I'm looking at him as kind of this last pitcher on your 15 team staff, uh, cheap NL play. Um, but I think uh, I think he provides a little bit of a profit. I like it, a guy like that in a uh, like a fifth in my 50 round drafts. I drafted him, and it's good to have that guy that he can start during a San Francisco week, and you feel like. Uh, maybe you've got a decent floor uh, when you do that versus, you know, inevitably you're going to have one of your starters at Coors or um, at Boston or some just awful matchup. So I like having a guy like that that, you know, maybe 30% of the season, 30% of the weeks he's relevant. Rudy Gamble's Boons, Kevin Kiermeyer of Tampa, Gerardo Parra of Colorado, Charlie Morton in Houston, Derek Holland in San Francisco. Rudy, let's move over to the thumbs down. Uh, Baines players, uh, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, who's an American League hitter you think will be a Bane for his fantasy teams? You know, one guy that 
I didn't get, um, and I don't hate, but I'm a little bit worried about is Mike Moustakis. He had, last year was really the first year he put it all together. Um, and I think, you know, it's tempting now that he's got a, a landing spot to draft him a little higher uh, because of it. Uh, the lineup is like in ashes, so it's not a, a great lineup. Maybe it gets him a little more plate appearances. He gets hit more in the middle of the lineup, but uh, don't like the lineup, don't like the stadium. And look, he missed some spring training, and I also just wonder. I mean, what is uh, how he's feeling? <laughs> he yeah, he uh, was pretty pretty disappointing off season for him, and. Uh, it's not like he's good. It's not like if he puts together another great season, it's going to do anything because next off season there's some amazing players going going to be available in free agency. So, not loving um, Mike Moustakis this year. In the National League, who's a bane hitter? I think a guy that gets a. He used to be undervalued, now he's a little overvalued. Is DJ LeMahieu? Um, the reason you're drafting him is for average and runs. The yeah, he used to be able to chip in 20 stolen bases. He didn't do that last year. So I, I feel like now you're looking at a guy that you're playing at second or middle infield, isn't giving you the speed. The runs are driven mainly by hitting at the top of the lineup. If you look at that lineup, there's a lot of guys you could put up number you know, at, at, the, at the top of the lineup at one or two. Um, so I do think there's a chance he ends up hitting seventh or eighth, which crushes the runs. Um, and then you're also looking at Brandon Rogers beckoning. Um, it seems inevitable that DJ LeMayhew's moved because they're not going to move Trevor Story, and Story can't move the third. So I wouldn't be shocked if uh, you know if if things aren't going great for the Rockies if LeMayhew's dealt to a team that has a you know that has a second base hole. Over to the mound again in the American League. Who's a pitcher you think will be a bane for his fantasy owners? Anyone in Baltimore I'm shying away from. So, you know, I feel like Gaussman and Cobb, I think particularly Gaussman is one that people are kind of inevitably buying into every year. Um, I, just, I just don't trust it. I don't have, uh, I don't have much more to go on except uh, kind of a, a feeling, but I, I just, I, I don't, trust anyone in Baltimore facing that, facing uh, the Yanks in Boston, pitching in that park, um, and pitching with that, it's probably going to be an awful defense, because they seem to rot, they seem to build their roster like a softball team. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd pretty much say like everyone on Baltimore except for uh, Brock and, and uh, Givens, I would steer clear of a, a team fade. And finally, who's a National League pitcher you think will be a bane for owners? I'm not buying in yet on uh, Jake Arrieta. I think um, yeah, the, there, there's definitely signs of, of his decline. Um, he was able to get that great contract. I'm just, um, yeah, I, I do think the, the Phillies are an improved team. I'm just worried that uh, you know he, he's really just an innings eater at this point. That uh, but, you know, I think every pitcher has a, you know, a velocity they need to be great, and a velocity they need to be good, and a velocity where they're done. And um, I don't think he's got the velocity anymore to be great. I think he's he's at that kind of 
good level, and he and I'm, I fear he moves more towards the um, yeah you know, having to reinvent himself, like a Sabathia had to do, like um, even like and I think it's the same conundrum with Greinke. Um There's only so much uh, pitcher brilliance one can have um, in order to still succeed. I mean, we saw it with everyone from Maddox to. Uh, to like a Dan Harron, who I thought was a really sharp pitcher. At a certain point, you can't, you know, I think as his Twitter thing is, you can't get by with 85. Yeah, Jared Weaver, another example of having functional fastball speed. So, uh, yeah, wary of Arietta, and I guess that's, that throws in Greinke in there as well, but uh can't say uh, my Bane pitchers are uh, are quite as unpredictable as maybe my uh, my other picks were. Rudy Gamble's Baines, uh, Mike Moustakis of Kansas City, DJ LeMahieu in Colorado, the entire uh, Baltimore pitching staff with a couple of exceptions, but particularly Kevin Gaussman and Jake Arrieta of the Phils. Uh, Rudy, tell us where our listeners can follow you and read more of your work. Yeah, well, first is at uh, Razball. Um, you're going to, you know, looking under the projections, you're going to see all the tools. So I, I'm mainly there, but you could, there's articles there. Um, it'll be I'll have a, a few here and there. There, um, most a lot of my stuff's on Twitter now. Um, when I have little bursts of time and uh, wit to share, or the opposite of wit, um, so that's at Rudy Gamble. So those are the the two good places to find me. You could you could friend me on Facebook if you want, and my Twitter stuff will go there. And I think if I post, it'll show up there. But I'm not on I'm not on Facebook very often. We were worried about you know them selling my data off. So focus on the other things. I hear you, brother. I closed my account, uh, in fact, for that very reason. Rudy, thanks a, a million for talking with me today. It's been a real delight, super interesting. I'm glad you could take the time, and I'll catch up with you again during the year, I hope. No, definitely, yeah. I, I really appreciate being on. Love your podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty rare that you get to ex- expound on on these type of topics. And uh, so I feel like this is a great outlet for it. Thanks again, Rudy. Rudy Gamble does the stats, projections, and tools for Rasball.com and writes for the site as well. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 27th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number eight of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest expert for this Tuesday Tout edition of our show, Rudy Gamble from Rasball.com. Rudy's a really accomplished guy with the stats, an excellent and successful fantasy player in his own right, and, as you heard, a lot of fun to talk with. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast or a bad old joke is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Thursday with our regular news and commentary edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you Thursday. So long. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.